بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد My dear respected brothers and sisters in Islam, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So inshallah, moving forward, we'll be having our sessions on Monday nights. I'm not sure if you received the uh, message or not, because you know, a lot of the feedback we got that people apparently want to come, but they are um, invited to different places Friday night. Huh? No, priorities, right? So alhamdulillah, it's okay. So inshallah, Monday night, uh, we will this coming Monday. So, inshallah, after another yeah, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday, hopefully, we'll be back again. So, last time, we, Alhamdulillah, we had the opportunity to read through this whole hadith and translate it. Uh, and then we had started the discussion of the Sanad. We completed that. Bismillah Rahman Rahim. So, it is a, it's a long hadith. Um, There are brothers uh, and sisters maybe on-site and online who were not here last week and others who um, may have been here but uh, need to have a short refresher. So this hadith is about Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, how the beginning of his wahi was, the commencement of his, the inspiration to uh, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was in the form of good dreams, which came like the bright daylight. Then he was in seclusion, God of Hira, and how the first revelation began with Jibreel coming to him and asking him to read Iqra. And then the Iqra bismi rabbika khalaq, these ayat were revealed. Thereupon, after that, Rasulullah returned back. He was frightened by that experience. How Khadija bin Khuwaylid, his wife, radiallahu ta'ala anha, consoled him. And then she took him to her cousin Waraqa bin Nawfil. And Waraqatu ibn Nawfal, and how he um, prophesied that Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam would be one day expelled from Makkah, and he recognized that that was the same angel that had come to Musa alayhi salam in the past, and Isa alayhi salam, this is angel Jibrail alayhi salam, and he said, if I would be alive on that day, I would love to support you and assist you. And Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam expressed his wonderment, amazement: How is that possible? Will they really expel me? But then there was a break in the wahi that was known as Wafatar al Wahyu. And in that period, in, shortly after the, this meeting, in fact, uh, he passed away. So that is like the very shortened version of this hadith. Now, going back to the beginning, uh, we talked about these narrators Yahya bin Bukir and Al Layth and Uqail, and Ibn Shahab Zuhri, Urwa ibn Zubair, Aisha bin Mu'minin, Radiallahu ta'ala anhunna, anhu, anha, wa anhum ajma'in. Anna qalat, she says, Awalu ma budya bihi Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in al wahi, a ru'ya a salihatu fin noam. The beginning uh, of the revelation that came upon Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was a ru'ya a saliha, true dreams that he saw, fin noam, in his sleep. To a number of points here. First is that uh, when did this happen? Just like we know that Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was, this is easy to remember the month, it's because Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he was born in Rabi'ul Awwal. And then he passed away in Rabi'ul Awwal. So these true dreams also began in Rabi'ul Awwal. The true dreams began, Ibn Ishaq, he writes that the true dreams began in Rabi'ul Awwal. 
So we have Rabi'ul Awwal followed by Rabi'ul Thani, then Jamaat Al-Ula, and Jamaat Al-Thani, then Rajab and Sha'ban. So there are six months. And then in Ramadan, Jibreel alayhi salam came. The incident we find of the, uh, that happened in Ghar of Hira, where Jibreel alayhi salam comes and embraces Nabi sallallahu very tightly three times. And the whole incident of the re revelation of Iqra, Bismi Rabbika alladhi khalaq, Iqra qala ma ana biqari, qala Iqra ma ana biqari. That incident, it occurs in Ramadan. We know that, we always re are reminded of that in Ramadan, when the Imam mentions or we are uh, read about inna anzalnahu fi Laylatul Qadr. That the revelation of the Quran began in Laylatul Qadr. And Laylatul Qadr is in Ramadan. Allah Ta'ala says, Shahrul Ramadan, Alladhi unzila fi hil Quran. Shahr of Ramadan, the month of Ramadan, the Quran was revealed in it. So the revelation of the Quran began in Ramadan uh, from Iqra Bismi onwards. And the dreams began in Rabi al Awwal. So the, there, there is a period of six months. And this is the interpretation of the hadith that Rasulullah said that the true dreams are 146th of Nabuwa. We'll come 146th. So there are 23 years of Nabuwa of Rasulullah. And half of the first year, six months, the dream, where the revelation came in the form of true dreams. So six months out of 23 years would be 146th. Um, now, what is the reason why these true dreams came? And why didn't it just start with Iqra Bismi Rabbika Alladhi Khalaq with Jibreel Alayhi Salaam? The scholars mentioned that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, and we see this with respect to other Anbiya in the Quran as well, He has a period of time where He preps them spiritually. He's building up their spiritual st strength to be able to receive the full revelation. Because it is a very, very heavy kalam. You know, just like somebody is working out in the gym, it takes a while to build up their uh, strength to be able to carry heavier and heavier weights. Even when people are just playing basketball or any game also before they have stretches to, and warm-ups. Stretch the muscles and ligaments so they get ready for the game. So here, for his heart, for the heart al-athar of Rasulullah to be ready to receive divine revelation, he had a warm-up phase. Just like we have the ramp to speed up before we hit the highway. And there are a lot of different things that happen in the life of Rasulullah from his childhood which were preparing him for this wahi. Because the wahi began when he was 40 years of age. But in these 40 years, we see the divine uh, guidance from Allah Ta'ala and tarbiyah from Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala for Rasulullah not only for him also the tarbiyah of the people around him that they had um, so many incidents that they could reflect back on when he would be giving da'wah at the age of 40 when he would start then they would have an opportunity to reflect and say oh this is why that happened that happened this happened that happened all the miracles from his childhood they would have an opportunity to reflect on them and come to the conclusion, wow, he was a special baby from the beginning. For example, one is just the seerah that we study, and one is the fiqh seerah, the jurisprudence of the prophetic biography. So, Shaykh Sa'id al-Mudan al-Buti, rahmatullah 
passed away recently in Syria. So it's pretty scary to think about it because if you see the video of how he died, he's a similar table like this, similar masjid like this. Yeah, he was giving a dars in the masjid in Syria, in Dimashq. So a person comes and plants a bomb and then, you know, he becomes shaheed and the people around him. Subhanallah. So we should not take anything for granted. So it's, it's on the camera, it's recorded on the masjid cameras and that's the video of him dying while giving a dars in the, in the masjid. You saw it on YouTube, right? Allah. It's a small table just like this and it's a masjid and people are sitting. So Sheikh Sa'id Ramadan al-Buti, rahmatullah alayhi You know, people, if you are not from Syria, perhaps you may not have heard his name, but he was a very controversial because towards the end what happened is, great scholar, great, great faqih and Sufi and Sheikh, but uh, he was quiet in the beginning of the um, movement against Bashar al-Assad. He did not uh, support the, the rebels against the government. He was saying that we should... Um, if you're not in a position to overthrow the government, then by doing these protests and fighting against this Alawi regime, we're going to end up having more loss of life. That's what he was looking for. From the perspective of, you're not really in a position to take over these people, these Alawi Yun, this Alawi non-Muslim government is too strong. And what's going to happen is they're going to squash, like how this Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafiz al-Assad, did in the tragedy of Hama. The whole city of Hama, uh, to teach a lesson, he brought his battalion of Alawi troops and with the tanks, they went over all the homes and the masajid and the market and they leveled the entire city. You know, conservative estimates are around 30,000 people were killed. The whole city was destroyed. So he knew that this is the, these people are so volume tyrants. They do not fear Allah nor do they fear any creation of Allah, bloodthirsty people. So he, he was saying that, you know, do not rise up in rebellion. It's not worth it. That was what his initial position was. So that's why he was very, very popular, but then he lost his popularity at the end. However, uh, sources who are near to them, they revealed that towards the end, what happened is um, he was asked to sign a fatwa for all of the youth of Syria to fight with the regime against the rebels. And there already is mandatory military service there, but on top of that, some type of draft fatwa, or it is your duty to, in Islam to support the government. So he refused to sign the fatwa. It's not only about, you know, we, we sometimes don't know the, the test and trial they're going through. It's not only about saving your life. Oh, you want to get, you want to get, you know, be bribed by the king, and you want to have money, and, and it's not only that. It's not because of that all the time. Yes, of course, that happens too. People are selling their deen. But sometimes it's not even in fear of being killed. It's the fear of torture of your loved ones, your granddaughters, grandsons, children, loved ones, wives, whoever, sisters. They're all going to be brutally attacked. That sometimes becomes a, uh, um, a difficult for a person in that position to go ahead and uh, speak out against the king. That's why Rasulullah said, Afdalul Jihadi, Kalimatu Haqqin, in the Sultanin Jair, the highest ultimate form of jihad is to speak the truth in front of a tyrant king. Afdalul jihad, the afdal, highest form of jihad, kalimatu haqqin, to speak the truth in the sultanin jairin. In front of a king who does have 
all the worldly apparatus in the government and the power of the government in the army and Jair means he is Jor. Jor is Dhulm, Zalim, Tyrant. Like uh, so many examples of this throughout history, subhanAllah. Sa'id ibn Jubair in front of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, etc., etc. So when he was asked to sign that fatwa, he refused. He said, no, I can't do it. Shortly afterward was this bombing incident. So he did not write just Sirah book. He wrote a book called Fiqh Sirah. Fiqh Sirah, jurisprudence of the prophetic biography. And one Muslim's lady, convert lady, Nancy Roberts, she translated it, mashallah, into English. Uh, for those who cannot read the Arabic. So there are many incidents in Sirah that we just read it and then we go move on. In that book, he focuses on different lessons that we can learn. So, one example of that is in the seerah we learned when Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was a baby, uh, what happened with Halima Saadiya, right? How the milk which had fi finished, Allah Ta'ala granted her milk and her, and her donkey camel which was at the back of the caravan came to the front, all of these things. More importantly, like one question I would have in my mind when I would read the seerah is, when the baby Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is with his foster brother and sister uh, Shima and Anisa, these were the daughters of Halima Saadiyah. Uh, the biological daughter of Halima Saadiyah is Anisa, anha. She became, a, she accepted Islam, foster sister, Radai sister of Rasulullah sallallahu wasallam. So, I mean, she grew up with him, and there is no hijab between Radai brother and sister as well. Allah Ta'ala says, حَرِمَتْ عَلَيْكُمْ أُمَّهَاتُكُمْ وَبَنَاتُكُمْ وَأَخَوَاتُكُمْ وَعَمَّاتُكُمْ وَخَالَاتُكُمْ وَبَنَاتُ الْأَخِي وَبَنَاتُ الْأُخْتِي وَأُمَّهَاتُكُمُ اللَّاتِي أَرْضَعْنَكُمْ وَأَخَوَاتُكُمْ مِنَ الرَّضَاعَةِ Amongst the women that are haram for a man to marry, the mahrams, أُمَّهَاتُكُمُ اللَّاتِي أَرْضَعْنَكُمْ A foster mother who breastfed the baby and أَخَوَاتُكُمْ مِنَ الرَّضَاعَةِ Rada'i sister. So with this Rada'i sister, right now they were babies anyway, he was playing with them and then what happens is um, Later on, when Halima Saadiyah comes to see them, they, they run home. They run home and they're very, very frightened. And they say, oh mother, something very, very strange happened. And, and their, their faces are terrified that someone came down, something came down from the sky and took our little baby brother, Muhammad. You remember this story from a young child, when you were a child, when you read the seerah? And they put him down on the ground and they tore open his chest. They, it's like open heart surgery, without anesthesia, without anything, no... no <laughs> Out on the ground, subhanAllah, you know, he's sawing through the sternum, opening it up, Allahu Akbar. And they took his heart out. That must be very traumatic because the hadith mentions that they were traumatized by it because they literally took his heart out of his chest. It's like some horror movie. And na'udhu billahi we shouldn't have watched horror movies. But, and then uh, they, 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 they took a golden pitcher with some water and then they washed it and took out some blackness and then they put it back and they sealed it up and and then off they went so they, when they came back they found him lying there his face was pale and he was trembling but otherwise he recovered so so this is uh, the cleaning of the heart so, so it's a great miracle subhanallah it's amazing that Allah Ta'ala sent an angel from the heavens with the golden pitcher, with the zamzam water to clean his heart and remove the blackness from the heart, right? But the thing is, if you, if you have a habit of overanalyzing everything, one question used to come in my mind is that, wow, if Allah Ta'ala did so much to clean his heart and remove the black spot from his heart, divine intervention and sent this angel for the surgery, then why did Allah Ta'ala put the black spot in the heart to begin with? 
Couldn't he have created him with a pure heart? Because he's going so much, uh, so, you know, such an amazing surgery is taking place to clean the heart. It could have been cleaned from the get-go. I used to wonder, I was like, okay, whatever, maybe that's just the way it is. You never know. Until I came across this book, Fiqh al-Sirah, Sayyid al-Mudan Bhuti, uh, and then subhanAllah, I guess I wasn't the first person to have this question because he answered it in the book. In that book he writes that, in case somebody says, this is a classical style, it goes like this, فَإِنْ قِيلَ قُلْنَا If the objection is made, we will answer thus. In fact, there are some books, the entire format of the book is فَإِنْ قِيلَ قُلْنَا فَإِنْ قِيلَ قُلْنَا The whole book is, if the objection is, is you know, raised in such a manner, the we will respond in this manner. That's like a whole style of writing. It's just out of vogue, no one writes like that anymore. But there was a period of time in our academic history, in the past, where they would, this was a um, preferred style. In certain contexts, not all the time. Anyway, so he, he, he says, if this question is raised, then the answer is, yes, he could have been born without the black spot. Why have, who put the black spot to begin with? Allah. Then he sent this whole uh, team to go in, of angels to go clean it out. He said, the reason it happened is because when, this was a huge incident. And they went and they told their mother. And the mother in the Banu Sa'ad tribe, she told other women. People knew about it. It was a talk of the tribe and it became the talk of the town. So this is one incident amongst many, many other such miracles were, which were what? Setting the stage. That when he reaches the age of 40 and he comes and he says, Ya Yohannas, inni Rasulullahi ilaykum jami'a, O mankind, I have been sent as a messenger of, from Allah for your guidance. Then all of those past incidents should go in their mind. They say, oh, yeah, that's, that must be true. That's why this open heart surgery happened. That's why this miracle happened. That's why that miracle happened. As we see that, these are, these are called the mubashirat, glad tidings. Among the mubashirat is that Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam said that Till today, inni la'arifuhu al-an. Even now, before he passing away, at the end of his life, he's saying, I still know those rocks. I can identify those rocks when I would be walking. If you go outside of Makkah today, even though it's a huge city, you don't have to go too far, you'll find desolate what? Valleys, mountains, stark without a blade of grass, bright sun. It's, it's very, very harsh terrain and you are alone out there. You don't have to go hundreds of miles to leave civilization. Just a few miles out, you'll be out of civilization. So you can imagine, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi is walking in a valley where there's no human being ahead or behind or right or left anywhere. As far as the eye can see, there's no human being. And then he hears very loudly, As-salamu alayka ya Rasulullah. So then he turns right and left, where is it? And then he hears that the, uh, the sound coming from the rocks. Was it all the rocks all the time? No. Once in a while, a few rocks. He says, Verily today I can identify for you those rocks. But outside of Makkah, they used to say salam to me. Assalamu alayka ya Rasulullah. And I would turn around and look at the rock. Oh my God, the sound came from the rock. Before I was conferred prophethood. Before Ba'atha. So, so what is this happening again? Prepping him up that you will be receiving prophethood. So the preparation is happening for the people to accept him as the Nabi and the preparation is happening for himself to recognize that he is not an ordinary child, ordinary young man. He, he has a great, great future ahead of him. It sounds too, uh, you know, cliche of a statement with respect to him. 
uh, he has the he, he is destined for the ultimate greatness possible for any human being for any creation for that matter afdalul khalqi ajma'in sallallahu alayhi wasallam um so other examples we find of this wa wa'adna musa 30 layla musa alayhi salam allah ta'ala says that we gave him a pledge that you need to spend 30 nights in i'tikaf uh, then Allah Ta'ala added 10 more nights then he had to continue to do itikaf for 40 nights um, before his heart was ready to receive the Torah so just like people had to be convinced he's a prophet he had to be convinced he is a prophet so this conviction for this belief in himself that he is special started with these true dreams. So we have this word, ar-ru'ya as-saliha, true dreams. Now there are different narrations in which uh, these dreams are been described. In this narration we have as-saliha. As-saliha is a dream which is a very positive dream. It gives you, it gives you good feelings. It uh, motivates you, encourages you when you wake up. You are encouraged, you're full of energy. That is a ru'ya saliha, a good dream. Another uh, word that comes in the narration is a ru'ya asadiqa. Asadiqa comes from sidq. Sidq means to be true, to be truthful, to be 100% accurate. That what you see is not a false dream, it is a true dream. True dream in, in the sense that what you see exact, is it's exactly what occurs very soon. In the case of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it occurs the next day. So he sees a dream in the night. So it is as-saliha as well as as-sadiqa. And the third is al-wadiha. Al-wadiha means it's very explicit and clear. Because sometimes you may see a, you may see a dream which is confusing. It's confusing because you're not sure what the interpretation of the dream is. But with respect to Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the dream was very, very clear. There's no confusion what it means. So we have three sifat. And um, they are not necessarily always found together. Uh, with respect to the Anbiya Salam, their dreams are not necessarily always wadiha, clear and explicit. There may be interpretation required, as we will see. Their dreams are also not always asaliha, positive. They could be uh, warnings and, and not positive. But they are always a sadiqah. They are always true. So what's an example of a dream that is... This actually, I kind of touched on this in the Q&A at the end of last week's session. Somebody asked a question and then we touched on this. But I did not go through it all. So if you have a dream... Okay, by default, the dreams of the Anbiya are always a sadiqah, true. Because the Nabi who does not speak lie when he is in a state of wakefulness, he will not also see a, a dream uh, which is false. Of course, that's just an additional benefit to know, but the reality is the dreams of the Anbiya from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's side have been confirmed always to be true. That's the end of the discussion there. Additional wisdom behind it is the fact that they are truthful in the day, so that is also coincides with them having true dreams. And why that is relevant, this side point, is because it comes in narrations and the scholars mention that the one who, amongst us now, as ghair ambiya, not ambiya, if, we, if a person has a habit of lying, kathab, the um, habitual liar, 
then that individual, his dreams also will be less chances of his dreams being true. What he sees in his dream will not necessarily be true. It has an effect. SubhanAllah, there could be some study done on this. Like of a person who, you know, imagine collecting data right, and saying, sir, how often do you lie, sir? <laughs> you have to fill out a survey. And then we check their dreams, huh? He's going to lie about, oh yeah, he's going to lie about the fact that he does he lie or not lie. But, and then those who are very truthful in life, yeah, um, you know the, the particular Muslim countries, subhanAllah, they, they say that in the list of uh, which are the most um, corrupt nations on earth, there's the second place. Now, the reason the second place is because they bribed the, uh, they bribed the agency that was doing the uh, analysis, right? Otherwise it would have been first. Anyway, so the, if you take a study, those who are truthful when they're awake, they will be also blessed with true dreams. And those who are lying, they will, they will be, have their, their dreams will also be false. So, example of it being sadiqah is always sadiqah. But salihah and ghair salihah. Ghair salihah is an example Rasulullah saw a dream, a terrible dream, where he drew out a sword from the scabbard, but then he started breaking into pieces in his hand. And then he saw that the cows were being slaughtered and the blood was splurting all over the place. This was a true dream, sadiqah, but not salihah. Because he woke up and he was not happy with that. It was a very sad dream. Tragic dream, bad dream. What was that dream about? That was about the, right before the battle of Uhud. That 70 of the dear Sahaba were going to become shaheed, including Musa ibn Umair and Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, Sayyid al-Shuhada radiallahu anhum ajma'in. That's an example, sadiqah, but ghair sadiqah. Another example is where uh, it's salihah. It's very positive and sadiqah, true, but it's not wadiha, it's not clear. He misinterpreted it. Which one is that? Where he saw a dream that he's performing umrah, he's making tawaf, and he's doing sa'i. So he told, he got up and he was very, very excited. This is now six years since he has left Makkatul Mukarramah. And he has left his homeland and he had cried when he left and he was cheering and he said, Ya Makkah, O Makkah, you are the most beloved piece of earth to me. If the people of Makkah did not expel me from you, I would never leave you, O Makkah. And he was crying when he left. We who our hearts are so corrupted and rusted, still when we leave uh, Makkah, uh, we still have that pangs. Imagine he was born there, he grew up there, that was his watan, homeland, and his connection to the Kaaba as a Nabi of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That one line of a poem comes to mind where, I don't remember the whole poem, but it's something about the fact that the person saying the, the, the qafila, the caravan, is leaving. And the poet is saying that, oh, I don't want to leave, I want to continue to stay. Most of the poetry is about Medina, because of love of Rasulullah Or there are some poems about Makkah. This one is very unique about the whole scene of leaving Makkah and not wanting to leave Makkah to Makkah So, um, the desire of the person is that he wants to continue to, com continue to make tawaf. He doesn't want to stop the making tawaf, but the caravan is leaving. So the one line that comes in my mind is Talbon ki piyas bujanun to chalun. My Talbon ki piyas bujanun to chalun. My soles of my feet 
they're still thirsty and want to continue to enjoy making tawaf of the Kaaba, let me at least quench the thirst before I go. How can I leave? So Nabi Sallallahu was so was so sad to leave. And now he saw the dream to go back. So he was very excited. So this is Saliha, Sadiqa true, but it was not Wadiha because he made a mis, uh, misjudgment uh, in uh, in, I didn't, in reaching the conclusion that he thought it was right away. So he told everyone, get, let's get up, let's go, let's go. 1400 Sahaba got ready. They traveled all the way right to the doorstep of Makkah, a few miles outside in Hudaybiyah. They got rejected and they had to be sent back because the Makkah authorities, they said, you know, you come back with a new visa next year. Right at the port of entry, they were sent back. Let's not get started on that topic. All right. Allah was not. Yeah, online, yeah. Allah. That's what a big mess. So that's why this dream was not wadir. And um, <clears throat> these dreams that were in the beginning had all three. They were wadir, very clear. And they were salih and they were salih. Now moving forward, there is the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Ru'yal mu'mini, the true believers, their dreams. Not only anbiya, the believers' dreams as well. Min juz'im min sittati wa arba'ina juz'am min anabu'a. 146, the prophethood. That's from Rabi'ul Awal to Ramadan. One question comes is that if Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam is, uh, is the khatim al Nabi, seal of the prophets, and the prophethood ended, then how can you say that the prophethood continued? Because you'll say 146th of Nabuwat still continues through uh, the true dreams. So um, we should have no confusion regarding this matter. Obviously, the, this is just one part of Nabuwa, but Nabi wasallam, as far as having the entire Nabuwa and having becoming a full Nabi, no matter how many of these false prophets are there. Nabi Sallallahu prophesied that they will come and they will claim, I'm a Nabi, I'm a Nabi. A person cannot become a Nabi with 146th of prophethood. Only when a person has complete 46 out of 46. 100% prophethood, then a person will be a Nabi and that will never happen. Because Rasulullah Sallallahu is Khatamul Anbiya. This 146th of Nabuwa will continue. It, has, it is not contrary to our Aqeedah of Khatmul Nabuwa. Allah Ta'ala made it very clear in the Qur'an, مَا كَانَ مُحَمَّدٌ أَبَا أَحْدٍ مِرِجَالِكُمْ وَلَكِنْ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ وَخَاتَمَ النَّبِيِّينَ He's a seal of the prophets. Um, there is another, there are other narrations about this one, 146th and uh, I will skip that discussion for now. One, one other important issue here about the dreams of Anbiya being wahi. There is another objection that comes is that if a Nabi sees a dream then this is a wahi from Allah Ta'ala, it has to happen. It must occur. Uh, then like we saw Nabi Sallallahu dream about the Shahada, it happened. 70 Sahaba became Shaheed. We saw the dream about him making Tawaf. He misunderstood it for that year, sixth year. But what happened? They came back seventh year, did it. But there is a dream in the Quran that did not happen. And it's a dream of a Nabi. So the question is, was that dream a true dream or not? Which dream is this? This is the dream where 
Ibrahim alayhi salam, he sees a dream. He says, Ya Buniya, inni arafil manam. Oh my dear son, I saw a dream. Anni adbahuka, that I'm slaughtering you. So, you think about it, what's your opinion? He said, Oh my dear father, go ahead and do that which you're commanded. <clears throat> you will find me indeed one of the patient ones. Surah Safat. This is your Eid al Adha, typical reminder. And I'm not trying to say, I use the word typical, it may sound like um, I'm saying that uh, in a derogatory manner, there's no negative connotation associated with that word. What I mean is, it's needed to be reminded because Allah Ta'ala has institutionalized the whole Eid al Adha for us to remember. And he wants us to remember. He wants us to walk in the footsteps of Ibrahim He wants us to pelt the stones in Jamarat. He wants us to walk from Safa tomorrow. He wants us to remember and we need to remember. And sometimes if you remind at the time when we're supposed to remind and Allah wants us to remember, people think, oh, you don't have another topic? Why do you always say the same story? We're supposed to remind it to. How many sifat of Khalilullah do you and I have? So our job is not done. Just because you know the story doesn't mean we, need, we don't need to benefit from it. How much of that have you in practice? Oh my God, Eid al-Adha, same khutbah is giving. Well, that's the objective. The purpose of Eid al-Adha is to remember Ibrahim Anyway, that is one objection that how, how come the dream didn't happen? So there are different um, responses. It's interesting to see the different responses of the different shaykhs and ulama of the past to see how they can approach the situation differently. Some of the answers will make more sense, some less. Some, one answer I'll give that it is, I'll start with a weaker one, which is not correct, I would say. Shaykh Akbar Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, rahmatullahi, great scholar, but over here he gave an opinion, which really is not the strongest of opinion, and it's a, it would be apparent why as well. He says that um, this was an ishtihadi mistake, na'udhu billah, uh, on the part of um, Ibrahim, alayhi, uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam. That sometimes when you see something in a dream, is, is not literal. An example of that is right from the Quran. Majority of the dreams are not literal for that matter. Because uh, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he drank milk and then he gave it to Abu Bakr and Umar to drink after him. And he interpreted the milk, the milk as knowledge. Or the qabis of Umar anhu. It was big and large. He said that is a sign of ilm. Or the Quran in Surah Yusuf, you have Sabah Baqaratin Siman, Yaakulun Sabahun Ijaf. Seven skinny, emaciated cows that are starving. You can see the ribs, they go up and gobble up and eat up the seven fat cows. So, does that mean seven thin cows are going to eat seven fat cows? This is not the dream of the Nabi, this is the dream of the king. So, Yusuf al Islam, he explained it, right? The seven good years and then of, of uh, produce and then seven years of famine. On and on, I mean, there's a lot of examples, right? Not, uh, vast majority of the dreams are not going to be what? Literal. So likewise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he sent his dream, because he's coming from the perspective that he wants the dream, because in the dream he's slaughtering Ismail al and it didn't happen in real life. Who did he end up slaughtering? The, the, the ram from Jannah. So that's why he says that this dream was about him slaughtering the ram from Jannah, but he assumed it was his son. And what the dream actually meant did happen. So he's okay from that perspective. So that's what he was trying to prove, that the dream did happen. The true interpretation of the dream did occur. However, there was an ishtihadi mistake in understanding and interpreting it. Like Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam thought he has to go for Umrah 
this year, but he had to go the next year. The reason this is a wrong answer is because the whole element of the test is not there. Plus, if you look at the context of Surah Safad, it doesn't add up. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to Ibrahim alayhi salam, Qad saddaqta ru'ya. Oh, Ibrahim alayhi salam, you have fulfilled and proven the dream true. Likewise, Allah ta'ala says, وَفَدَيْنَاهُ بِذِبْحٍ عَظِيمٍ We ransomed and gave him a fidya. Instead of Ismail, we sent down the ram from Jannah. Likewise, Allah ta'ala says, إِنَّ هَذَا لَهُوَ الْبَلَاءُ الْمُبِينَ Verily, this was a very big test. So if the purpose of the dream was, oh, you have to sacrifice the ram of Jannah, how is that a test? All Muslims, non-Muslims, strong, uh, you know, those strong iman, weak iman, those have no iman, this slaughter goats, it's not a big deal. So how is this Bala'ul Mubin? Bala'ul Mubin is a major, major test. Bala, ibtila. So the test was to slaughter his son. So that is the first interpretation which was wrong. Second is Allama Anwar Kashmiri, Rahmatullah Ali. He, he just gives a very easy answer, pretty straightforward. He says, look, the dream how, uh, may have been that he was attempting to slaughter his son. That's what he saw. And he attempted to slaughter his son in real life. Like he put him down. Uh, um, he put him down on the ground on his forehead. He was the first was face upward. Then he said, it's very hard for me to do this because you're looking straight at me. So he turned him around so he doesn't see his eyes. So then he took the knife and he was cut and he sharpened it. And he attempted it, but it wasn't cutting, kept on trying hard. And the Nabi of Allah, you know, it has what? Strength of 40 men. So it's so powerful arm and with pushing very hard and, and, um, uh, and a sharp knife back and forth, but it wasn't cutting because it wasn't destined to cut. So he did that. And that's exactly what he saw in his dream. So the dream did happen. Why are you saying that it didn't happen? And... Ibn al-Qayyim, number three and last one on this matter, he has another interpretation which is interesting. He says that, look, uh, there is a command from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to do something. If the command of Allah ta'ala, if the dream was that he completely slaughtered his son, if you take that perspective, even then, he, don't worry about it. If the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was to do something, then the command of Allah is an amr. And the amr of Allah ta'ala we covered in Ramadan, one of the nights after tafsir, after tarawih, about nasq being abrogated. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can give a command and there's a purpose for the command. And once that command is fulfilled, the purpose is fulfilled, then Allah can change it and bring another command. It's called nas abrogation. So Allah ta'ala for example says that perform salah towards Baytul Maqdis for 16 months in Medina. The purpose is so that the Yahud and the Nasara will know, oh, you're praying to the same Qibla they are. Then Allah changes the command and says now you perform salah towards Baytullah in Makkah, right? So likewise, this was a command from Allah, which was to slaughter Ismail salam. And he fulfilled the, and he started the command. To see, Allah Ta'ala wanted to see the te- if he was going to be ready to do that. Because he had, he was his first son. He had made dua for so long. He did not have a child. Finally, Allah Ta'ala blessed him with a son in old age. Uh, when he reached the age, he was running behind his father. So when the baby is born, the father cannot interact with the baby because the baby is just all the time drinking milk, sleeping, and is a bond with the mother. And there's a whole psychological uh, thing where the father feels abandoned. That if you were two, now they are two, and I am the third one out. Right. 
So, uh, particularly if it's the first baby. So it was him and his wife, they were t together as partners. Now this baby came in, now it's the mother and the baby, and he is just left, you know, out, on the outside and he feels abandoned. He goes through that phase. So, he cannot do anything. And when he's older, he goes off to college, he never calls his dad, never cares about his dad, he's busy. When he gets married and he has his own wife and children, he's busy. So there's only a small window where the son looks up to his dad and says that his dad is the biggest hero in the world, the strongest man in the world, the wisest man in the world, the ultimate hero is at that age when the child is running behind his dad. That's why Allah Ta'ala portrayed that entire scene within one word, within a few words. فَلَمَّا بَلَغَ مَعَهُ When he reached the age, he was running behind his dad. He says, oh my dear son, I saw that I'm slaughtering him. So he got ready and he fulfilled the order. And after he fulfilled the order, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abrogated the order, made it mansukh. He said, you don't have to complete that. Now I change the hukum. Now your hukum is to slaughter the, the ram. Subhanallah. Another command is, another question that comes up is that, okay, if this was a command from Allah to Ibrahim why did he ask his son? What do you, what do you think? If Allah Ta'ala commands you to perform salah, are you going to make mashara with your son? Beta, what do you think? Should we perform isha or not? You're not going to ask. So why did he ask? So there are two reasons. One is, he was not asking for approval or because he had any doubt. He was going to go ahead and do it. Number one, the reason he asked is he was, wanted to test his son. He's ready for that, but he was going to test his son to see the level of iman of his son. In the, when he asked him the question, he didn't say, Allah commanded me. What did he say? I just saw a dream. The son understood and knew that the dream is true. The dream is Amar of Allah. Dream is a command for his father. And in the whole thing, who's the victim? Himself. Victim from a worldly perspective. And shahada from Islamic perspective. So when he asked him, he says, uh, so the purpose is of the question was to see if he's ready. And what did he say? If ma tu'mar, do go ahead and fulfill the order you have been commanded. So he passed the test. Second reason why he asked him is because if he he had to fulfill the order of Allah and he knew and he was ready to do so, but what's the point of doing it in a haphazard manner without alerting the son who's intimately involved in fulfilling this command about what's going on? It doesn't make sense to just grab the son that you love and have been nurturing and providing, taking care of him. Just put him down, don't tell him what's going on. Just take a knife out and start trying to slaughter him. So that's why he wanted to prepare him so that it would be easy to fulfill the command. Subhanallah. Um, <clears throat> Allah Akbar. Now, one question moving forward about these dreams, he goes on. He saw, Nabi Sallallahu says, uh, the, the hadith says, Ar-ru'ya as-saliha, he saw a righteous dream, fin nom in the dream, in the, in the sleep. See this word, fin nomi. You know nom because you hear, salatu khayrum, in a nom. So nom means sleep. So fin nom means in the sleep. Scholars say, wait a second, why did they say fin nom in the sleep? Because ru'ya is a dream. Dreams are always when you're sleeping anyway. So what's the purpose of saying he would see the true dreams in his sleep? If it's a dream, isn't it always in your sleep? No. In the Arabic language, the ru'ya is something which a person sees and those around him do not see. Which could be in a state of sleep most of the time and can also be in a state of wakefulness. If a person is in a state of wakefulness as well and he is in such a condition, he can see something 
which those around him cannot see, that's also called ru'ya. And if he's in, and normally what happens in a dream, so if you're in a room, someone's sleeping there, uh, if they're speaking in their sleep or they're moving around and they're thrashing, you can tell that, wow, it's maybe he's battling in the sleep, maybe he's in a big battle, or, or someone's chasing him, or he's chasing someone, something's going on. But can you see what they're seeing? No, it's just like when they put the you know, visual VR glasses on, they can see something, you cannot see it. So if someone sees something in VR and you cannot see around them, that would be considered a, from an Arabic perspective, a ru'ya as well. So finnom is not without benefit. It, it indicates that the dream was when he was sleeping. An example of the word ru'ya meaning while a person is awake, and why does that have an, an important effect on our aqidah? Is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when He speaks about mi'raj, when He speaks about mi'raj and the different things that Rasulullah saw in mi'raj, He uses the word in the Quran, Surah Al Isra, Surah Al Isra wal Mi'raj, you know, Surah Al Isra, Surah Bani Israel, Ayah 60. Allah ta'ala says, وَمَا جَعَلْنَا الرُّؤْيَا الَّتِي أَرَيْنَاكَ إِلَّا فِتْنَةً لِلنَّاسِ That ru'ya, which otherwise is translated by, as a dream by people, I did not show that to you, but as a test for, the, for mankind. Will they believe in you as a prophet of Allah or not? So, if somebody says, oh, Ru'ya is a dream, does that mean the entire journey to Jerusalem and Masjid Al-Aqsa, leading the prophets, Anbiya in Salah, and from there traveling to Mi'raj, the night journey is Isra, and the journey in the skies is the Mi'raj, the ascension. Uruj, climbing up Mi'raj. And Isra is traveling in the night. So there's two parts. Makkah to Jerusalem, the first transit, that's Isra. And from Jerusalem, second leg of the journey up to Siddhat al-Muntaha is Mi'raj. Was that a dream? Was that just a dream or was it birruhi wal-jasad? With his soul and body together. So our aqidah is that it was with what? Soul and body. Because if it was just a dream, then in a dream you can see anything that's not really a miracle. You can see a dream, I can see a dream. Does that mean we're a Nabi? Absolutely not. So, Nabi saw all these things in real life while he was awake. But what he was seeing others around him could not see. That is why the word ru'ya is used in this ayah. Subhanallah. Then, uh, moving forward, it is mentioned that فَكَانَ لَا يَرَى رُؤْيَا He would not see any dream but it would come into existence like the break of the dawn subh is the morning falaq falaq is to tear open something and break it just like they say faliqul habbi wan nawa Allah is the one who opens up the seed so if there is a seed Allah Ta'ala is the one who cracks it open so that the, the plant, the shoot comes out of it and the plant grows in the ground قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ Falaq. Say, I seek protection in the Lord of Falaq. Falaq is the breaking of the dawn. So, as it comes, the, the dawn breaks. Even in, Arabic, in English, they say the break of dawn. Right? So, it brings the light on the horizon on the east. So, why, did, why was this dream mentioned as the break of the dawn? It is the subh. The, uh, the falaq al-subh, the break of the dawn, occurs before the sunrise. So the sunrise which was going to happen, which was going to illuminate the entire world, was when the true wahi begins. In Ramadan. The whole iqra bismi rabbika incident of Jibreel coming, that's what? The sunrise. 
And that sunrise was going to illuminate the entire world with Noor. Before that, these dreams are like the dawn. So there's some light, but it is giving an indication that a much bigger light is yet to, is going to come. Moving forward, what happened? Then he started enjoying to be in solitude. Why did he enjoy solitude? Because this is an opportunity for him to reflect, to ponder, to uh, meditate about the conditions of the ummah around him. This is personal ibadah. One lesson we learn here is that if a person is going to be involved in his own personal ibadah, then uh, we see two things. One is that his personal ta'aluq with Allah may increase, but there will be no change in the environment around him. Because Nabi Wasallam at this stage was not giving da'wah. What was he doing? Khalwa, ibadah. So what was happening in the society of Makkah? The dhulm was continuing unabated. The, the powerful were attacking the weak. Shirk was continuing nonstop. Women had no rights. The women, girls were being buried alive. Weak people were being oppressed. All of this zulm and, uh, and destruction of huququllah, huququ ibadillah, rights of Allah and rights of human beings was continuing nonstop. No change in that. Because the da'wah was not happening. Just a personal ibadah. And second thing we learn is that what was his status? This is the status of Makkah. What is his status? His status was he was Al-Ameen, Al-Sadiq, most beloved, most trustworthy, most truthful person, most popular person in Makkah. But then what happens? After he gets prophethood, when he starts inviting, doing, inviting towards Allah, then two things happen. He starts Amr al-Ma'ruf, inviting towards good, which does not get that much backlash. But he also does Nahi al-Munkar, forbidding that which is evil. Stop shirk. So when he does that, he will get, he's going to get what? Backlash. He's going to get resentment. He's going to get opposition. And attacks. Leading up to torture. And being called names. So that man, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who was the most popular, most respected, now turns into, they, they say, kathab. He becomes a liar. He becomes kahin, fortune teller, shair, poet, na'udhu billah, majnoon. These are the different... Majnoon as an insane. These are the different titles they gave him that Allah Ta'ala repeatedly refutes in the Quran. You're not Majnoon, you're not Kahin, you're not Shayan. This revelation of the Lord of the worlds, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala. So, this is what happens when Amr bin Maruf starts. Second thing that happened is that society changes. So the shirk eventually goes away. The dhulm is replaced with adal, injustice. So does that mean that we just give da'wah, don't do ibadah? No, we have to do da'wah and ibadah both. The point is that we cannot rely just on ibadah. If you're going to be doing only ibadah, then we will never be able to change the society around us. Change in society only comes when we also, along with ibadah, engage in da'wah. We have to engage in da'wah. We cannot... Just say that I'm going to flow, you know, swim against the current. We have to have concern to how to change the direction of the entire current. So at this stage he was doing khalwa and ibadah only. And where was he doing it? In this ghar. In this, وَكَانَ يَخْلُو بِغَارِ حِرَاءِ 
in the cave of Hira. Why did he choose the cave of Hira? The reason he chose the cave of Hira, there's a number of reasons. One is because in the ibadah of his forefathers, Ibrahim and Ismail salam, Ismail bin Ibrahim salam, there was a concept of worshipping and meditating. And his own grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, used to meditate. That's one reason. Number two is that he wanted to go to a quiet place away from the hustle bustle of the city, which is very obvious. Number three is he did not want to go so far away because there are many other mountains, many other caves, like Ghar Thor is there too, where he hid later on. He wanted to go in such a place which is unique attribute of this Ghar is if you're sitting in that Ghar, he could directly see the Kaaba. Not only Makkah, he could see the Kaaba, Al-Musharrafah. Allah May Allah protect him. So he could see the Kaaba. So it was, if you sit in, you have, you've gone up, from there you saw the Kaaba. MashaAllah. So, uh, which year was that? 2008. So with, despite all the tall buildings, you can, huh? You can see the Kaaba. It's like a building of the Haram Yaab. So there was a building ordinance, zoning ordinance in, in the Ottoman times in Makkah that no, no building shall be erected that is taller than the minara of the haram. So if you wanted to build, <laughs> this is a zoning ordinance, building, building code, building code of Makkah, Makarrama, Ottoman. You had to go back to the Ottoman times. We were very far from the Ottoman times. Uthmani Khilafah, this building code was that you cannot build any structure taller than the minaret of the haram. Just like people in Paris, they have more respect for the Eiffel Tower in Paris. It has the lowest skyline of any European capital. Because the Eiffel Tower is so low, they want to maintain the respect for the Eiffel Tower in, in Paris. So that's why the buildings are not taller than that, around it. But, you know, this was a prophecy of Rasulullah Jibali, That the buildings will be erected so tall in Makkah that they will be towering over the mountains. Or Sawa technically means they will be equal in height to the mountains. So he went to the Ghar of Hira because he could see directly the Kaaba. And um, some say that we can use the word I'tikaf. It's not proper to use the word I'tikaf because there are two, there are two words. Rasulullah said in the hadith himself that in Sahih Muslim, Jawartu bihara shahran. Jawara yujawiru mujawara. I did mujawara, which is ibadah in the cave of Hira for a month. The difference between mujawara and i'tikaf is i'tikaf is only done in a shari masjid. And if a person is doing i'tikaf, I mean, not i'tikaf, staying in a retreat in solitude for worship, but it's not a masjid, then that word would be used, mujawara. Why would a person in, do ibadah in solitude in a place which is not a masjid? Very, very uh, unique circumstances. One of them is this, like in Islam in a cave. Or otherwise, yeah, if a person, Naudhu Billah, is a prisoner somewhere, like Asiran in Malta, the island of Malta. So Shaykh Hind, Mahmoud Hassan, uh, Rahmatullah and his student, uh, Hussein Ahmed Madani. So they, they were in the month of Ramadan, in the, uh, among, uh, they were there for two years. The British had imprisoned them in the island of Malta. In the Mediterranean, see, there's an island. They were in prison there because they were, huh? Kalapani, right. There are Andaman Islands, Malta, different islands, the different uh, um, freedom fighters were sent in prison. So it's a long history. Mufti Mahmoud Hassan Daymundi, Rahmatullah Ali, 
he was trying to save the Ottoman Empire, Rishmi Rumal Tahrir, the movement of the silken scarf, where the plans were written and they were intercepted by the spy and they were given, they were outed out, then they were captured, he was captured. Subhanallah. Allah Akbar. Where? In the same Bilad al-Haram. Can you imagine the Haram? He came there to make tawaf and say to perform Umrah in Haram, the sacred land. This is Abdul Aziz bin Saud, the founder of the Saudi dynasty. He was still in Najd in Riyadh area. But this is Ottoman time. So this the governor of uh, Makkah was Sharif Hussein, the great grandfather of the king of Jordan today. Abdullah, the king of Jordan, is son of Hussein. And his grandfather was Abdullah, his father was Hussein. He is a great, great grandfather, great grandfather of the present king of Jordan. He was the governor of Hijaz, appointed by the Ottoman Khalifa. So the British told him that there is this freedom fighter who's fighting against colonial British imperialists who are ruling India at that time. He's fighting for the freedom of India. But he's there in Tawaf in the you captured him. They captured him from the Haram by the Kaaba, took him to the British embassy in Jeddah. Right. So Mullah Hussein Ahmad Madani, he was in Medina. He heard that his sheikh and his teacher was captured as a prisoner and is there in the embassy. Where? In Jeddah. So he ran from Medina. He was teaching dars of hadith. The dweller of this grave has said thus. He was teaching the hadith by the grave of Rasulullah. So he ran from there to the consulate. He went to them and he said that, I'm also a terrorist freedom fighter from India. I was part of the jihad against you. They said, are you crazy? He said, no, you need to arrest me too. They said, get out of here. Then he proved it. Like he proved the case against himself. Why? Because he was afraid about his teacher being alone in jail. So he wanted to be with him to do the khidmah of his sheikh. Subhanallah. So Mullah Hussein al-Madani, then joined him. Then they, they said, then he went with him. He was in Malta. And the stories are amazing. And he would, the khidmah, I mean, he, he, he voluntarily signed up to be in prison so that his sheikh cannot be alone. And when he went with him, uh, he would take the water that was cold water, he would fill up the pot with it, and he would grab it and hold on to it, hug it the entire night to warm it with his body warmth so that when his sheikh makes the wudu at the tahajjud time, it would be less cold. SubhanAllah. This is the khidmah. Uh, and when the month of Ramadan came, then he, had, he was not a hafiz and his sheikh was, had not finished his. So he said, oh, this will be the first Ramadan that we did not perform the taraweeh. So he said, do not worry. I, I, we will perform taraweeh. We will not complete the entire Quran. So he said, no, I will work hard. I will memorize one juice every day. And just to ensure my sheikh's khatam is not uh, is complete. So every single day he memorized when you would recite it to him from memory and he would leave it, lead it in the Tarawi Salah. SubhanAllah. So this would be an example of cannot do i'tikaf because there is no Muslim. You know the ayah comes in the Quran, فَسَعَوْا إِلَىٰ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ إِذَا نُودِيَ لِلصَّلَىٰ مِنْ يَوْمِ الْجُمْعَةِ فَسَعَوْا إِلَىٰ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ When the time for Jummah comes, hasten to the dhikr of Allah. So there is no Jummah, they are in a jail. But they would make ghusl with that water heated from the body warmth and then the, um, put on whatever clothes they had and they fuss, he would, Shaykh Mahmoud Hassan and uh, Hussein Ahmadani, he would say fuss out. They would prepare and walk all the way to the door of the jail. Then they would say, oh Allah, this is as far as we can go. 
We have done Sa'id. Is you command this for Sa'ud? Hasten. So we have hastened to as far as we can go. Then they will go back and pray Dhuhr. Many, many stories. So this is, you might think this is from like centuries ago. No. He's, this person, Hussein Ahmadine, I'm saying his son is alive today. Monana Arshad Madini, right. Asad Madini was the older one. Rahmatullahi passed away. We met him many times. And then his son, Arshad Madini. Arshad Madini, Dawan Barakatum, came here. This is Dawan Salaam. He gave me one greatest heart attack ever. He said something that my heart felt like drop. And then finally he said something that consoled me. Allah Akbar. I was holding his hand. Hazrat Maulana Arshad Madani. When you came in. This is pretty scary. This is one of the scenarios where if you hear half of it, you're going you know, to end up leaving like, oh my God, what happened? You have to hear the whole thing. Because he said something very scary. Then he consoled me after. So when he came in, he looked up. I was holding his hand. Then he said, Allah Akbar. He said, Ye Allah kagar nahi hai. So I got so scared. I said, Then he said, Ye to Allah ka mahal hai. <laughs> so then, so then I, <laughs> he said, this, this is not just a house of Allah. This is a palace of Allah. So he was so happy. But when he said the first thing, obviously you can imagine how my heart dropped. Right? La ilaha illallah, right? Subhanallah. Allah Akbar. Do you? Yeah. So, and that, that, that's another whole topic about beautiful masajid. You don't have much time. What time? 10 20. Yeah. Okay, I'll stop right here. I'll just finish this tangent because this thing comes up a lot of times. People wonder about it. There's a few things, right? First objection is oh, how was the Muslim the Nabui? Versus how are the masajid today? So answer that very quickly. Is that the Masjid Nabi was the best structure in Medina? Do you think the Sahaba who are ready to give their lives for Islam, the mothers who bring their baby, Ya Rasulullah, take him in jihad, what am I going to do with this baby? Use him as a shield. If an arrow comes, use my baby as a shield. Do you think these people would have better houses than the Masjid Nabi? No. Nabi Salaam's own house was such that when he wanted to go into sajda, Aisha Radana had to pull her legs back, right? When he would stand for the tahajjud, his head would touch the ceiling. So the houses were so bad, and the best and strongest structure, and the best construction was which one? Was the masjid. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, He says, Allah has given you permission that the houses of, that are dedicated to His worship, turfa' should be erected. Turfa' rafi' means to be erected high. It doesn't just say tubna to build them. So the best, so basically, people, they say that, oh, look at the Masjid Nabwi. They didn't even have light till the ninth year of Hijrah. Tamim Dari Radana brought the first candle in the ninth year of Hijrah. He illuminated the world with nur, but it didn't have the physical nur. It had the spiritual nur. And the, uh, when it would rain, then, the, okay, first of all, there's no uh, carpet, of course. They had rugs. Of course they had rugs. Par, uh, Faras and in the Persian Emperor and Roman Emperor, they had all kinds of carpets. Uh, but it was sand, so that the water would come and then the sand would become mud. Because it's leaking from the roof. And there was no roof, it had just leaves on the top. Um, so, we say that you wanna, when it comes to the masjid, you'll say, oh, the masjid should be like the masjid Nabi, it should be so simple. But then, what about the houses? 
Our houses, are we, are we, are our houses like the houses of Ansar and Muhajirun? Or Muhajirun and Ansar? No. Our houses like the Azwaj and Mutaharat? Houses of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? No. Subhanallah. You know, so there are like mansions and their homes and their double story, triple story, then there's ranch homes, then there's apartments, then there's townhouses, then there's apartments, three bedroom, then two bedroom, then one bedroom. Then what happens? Min studio. Smallest, right? There was one room in Darul Ulum Zakaria where we were studying, which was smaller than a studio. It was so small, you see this table, from this table to the wall, that much. It was one room. But the thing is, it's so crazy because within that room, it was next door to us and in the hallway, it was, I don't know why the room was so small. There was, I think half of the room was one toilet. It was just one toilet and on one side there was a plug-in uh, little stove, that was the kitchen, and one tap, that was the kitchen. So basically you have enough space to sleep, and as soon as you get up right there is the cupboard, and one sink, and in the bathroom. Just enough space to lay down. That is way smaller than any studio. Couple feet by couple feet. So we had one great teacher, Mullah Suleiman, teacher, he taught us Sahih Muslim. He lived in there for like nine, ten years. Then he brought his family from overseas. Then the mothers gave him a home because he brought his wife and kids. So then one of our classmates, Saeed Mansour, he, he moved into that home uh, because he was a married student. Now how he lived, Allah Alam. So one time in the class, Mullah Suleiman Chuksi, he asked the Saeed Mansour, you know, how is the home, you're living in that home? He said, I'll tell you one story. There was one Alim Sheikh from Tanzania who visited the Madrasa, from Darussalam, Tanzania. And he came. So when he met him, Mawlana Suleiman said, I, I said, come Shaykh to my home for some tea after chai. I'll host you in after Asr. So I took the Shaykh home. When I took him home, I didn't say anything. He was so small, he would keep his shoes outside the door. Because no place, if you keep the shoe inside, where are you going to sleep? Literally, he would keep the shoes outside the door in the hallway. He would keep the shoes outside, he went in, and the two of them sat, filled it up. So the Shaykh looked around, and he made the tea, and he was serving him. So... Mullah Suleiman said, he told me some words of consoling, consolement, and I will repeat those words to you. So he looked around the Shaykh and he said, he told Mullah Suleiman, he said, La ba's, ya Shaykh, hadha al-baytu akbaru min bayti Rasulullah. He said, don't worry, O Shaykh, this beautiful home is bigger than the home of Rasulullah. Hadha al-baytu, this home, akbaru, you know Allah Akbar, right? Akbaru min bayti Rasulullah. Bigger than the home of Rasulullah. So then, Mawlana Suleiman told Saeed, my classmate, who's now a big ustad of hadith now, in a madrasa. He said, I'll tell you, la baas ya Saeed, hazal baytu akbaru min bayti Rasulullah. I'll repeat the word to you. So this is how the homes were so small. This is, so the masjid was what? The most, the strongest, best building. So that's why what happens sometimes when they say that, uh, I remember in another masjid, I don't want to talk about this masjid. I'm talking about another masjid, they were, they were saying that, oh, if you wanted to make a, some, uh, some garden and some flowers around the masjid. They say, oh, why do we need to have flowers by the masjid? Why did they have to water the plants? Why do they have to put fertilizer? Why does the masjid have to look nice? But in our own homes, we will have beautiful front garden, back garden, vegetable garden, rose garden. The masjid, why does it have to look nice? Wasting money. That's one thing. Second thing is that, um, when, when, when the, the Allah Ta'ala blessed with wealth, Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu, what is the, one of the things he did in his khilafat? Is that he built the Muslim Nabi and he redid it very, very proper. 
And then he extended the masjid in the front side. That's why it's known as Mihrab Uthman. The last extension that happened in the Qibla direction till today of the masjid was the extension of Uthman radiallahu anhu. All the extension in the back is later on. Then Umar bin Abdul Aziz extended it again. Umar bin Abdul Aziz was the greatest Zayed Khalifa ever possible, but he extended it. He himself says his story that when he went into the Jami' Masjid Umawi, which was built by his predecessor Abdul Malik bin Marwan, and is still today existing, the Jami' Umawi in Damascus, Umayyad Mosque in English they call it. He was looking around at it and he was thinking, man, this is too much architecture, it's too much design, why is it so fancy? And he said this thought was going through his mind. And he was just thinking, he didn't tell anyone. And then he saw two Egyptian Christians, they came. And they were talking to each other. And one said to the other, wow, look at these Muslims, how great their architecture is. How great their devotion to their God is, that this house of worship that they erected for him, they built it so beautiful. Their engineering is so great. Their architecture is so great. Their science and technology is so great. They're so advanced. They're talking to each other. Then in his heart of his heart, he said, Alhamdulillah, oh Allah, thank you for sending these two Christians so that they made these remarks. So the ill feeling I had about the one who preceded me is now removed. So does it mean that we do not work on the uh, a'mal within? Of course, the a'mal within are the maqsad. The objective is the ibadah and the da'wah and the ta'aleem and ta'alum and the dhikr and the khidmah. The activities of the masjid are the ob actual objective. But having a, a good structure that people can be um, happy about to be associated with children when they come that they are they're uplifted that this is our university this is our school because our students here they are going to all the other high schools colleges universities which are funded by tax dollars and grants and top-notch facilities and then when we come to study the deen if you have a facility that is subpar suboptimal or underground or or, or moldy then it is difficult for them to develop that feeling of pride of their own deen and feeling of happiness that this is something that we're excited to come to. Even leaving all of that aside, just, just take one bottom line, is that how shameful for us if the condition of the masjid is worse than our homes. That's where it comes down to. It has to be better than the condition of our homes. Whereas many, many places we have in the Western world in America where the homes are, you have a single uh, mashallah, uh, all the children grew up, they became millionaires and they're, they're all maybe physicians. The old father and old mother, they're living in an empty home, $2 million, $3 million home. And that's okay. But if the, if the masjid is not, is, if you want to keep it uh, looking nice, then this is considered a wasteful expense. Right here, alhamdulillah, we also have examples where an imam of a masjid, he himself came up to us and said, this individual, this lady came to my masjid to accept Islam. And I asked her, how did you accept Islam? Did I tell you, share the story? MCC, Mufti Nazim Mangera. He was the Mufti at that time. He's not there anymore. But he was an imam in MCC, Muslim Community Center, Elston, Chicago, old masjid of Chicago. He himself reached out to us and said, a lady came, white American Caucasian lady, and said, I wanted to accept Islam all the way in Chicago. And he said, how do you, what did you learn about Islam? Why you want to accept Islam? She said, because I work on this side. I travel past. North Avenue, and there's a mosque, Dar es Salaam. I never met this lady. I only know the story from the Imam. And he said that, I passed by, I saw such a beautiful mosque with minarets. When we were building the masjid, Mufti Sayyid Ahmad Palanpuri, Rahmatullah Ali, who passed away, we asked him, should we cut out the minarets because of the cost associated? Just keep the dome. He said, no, do not cut out the minarets. 
He said a minaret is unique to Islamic architecture to a masjid. It falls under Allah. That is why the dome is found in Muslim architecture and non-Muslim architecture. The St. Peter's Cathedral in which is the home of the uh, what the Catholic Church in the Vatican also has a dome. The the Congress has what the Capitol building also has a dome. It's a different type of dome, but it's a dome. So dome is not unique to Islam, but minaret is. That's why in Switzerland, what are banned? Domes are not banned. Minarets are banned. Can you believe it? In in Europe, in in certain countries, Switzerland, there's movements in Belgium too where they want to ban, where they have already banned minarets. Whichever minaret already is existing, grandfather clause, fine. But you cannot build a minaret. Why did they ban the minaret? Because no other house of worship, no other architecture has a minaret. Minaret is a sign of Islam. So, subhanAllah. So this, this Mufti Nazim Mangara asked this lady, why did you accept Islam? And she said, because I passed by, I saw these minarets, I saw this mosque, so beautiful. And I said, what is this? I got attracted. Then I st studied, I went to the website, found out about the religion. Oh, this is a place where Islam is practiced. And I learned about Islam and I want to become a Muslim today. SubhanAllah. So they are, SubhanAllah, uh, sometimes we have different doubts come in our mind. So we, if we ask and learn about it, then those doubts can be removed. So we hope that inshallah, this is an opportunity for it to be a means of da'wah and a means of showing our belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how committed we are to our deen and it becomes a means of people coming close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala where we were we were talking about Mulana Hussein Ahmad Madani Rahmatullah and his son when he came here his comments but Mulana Hussein Ahmad Madani Rahmatullah and Shaykh Al-Hind Rahmatullah the ibadah of seclusion they were doing in the jail that would not be considered i'tikaf that would be considered mujawara uh, and Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the ibadah he was doing in the cave of Hira is not etikaf. That was mujawara. The reason it's not etikaf is because it was not a masjid. And we will continue with this discussion, inshallah, in a few days. On Monday, we'll be com coming back this Monday and moving onwards every Monday. May Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala give us tawfiq to make amal. Wa akhir da'wana. Alhamdulillah. Yes.